Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well That's done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello, everybody, on Words and Nerds podcast. Uh, my name is Ben Hobson, and Danny V uh, has invited me very, very graciously to interview uh, authors that I admire and people who I wanted to. It's pretty much my sneaky way of talking to people and unlocking their brains in, <laughs> in a public forum. So I'm joined today by Rowan Wilson, who has written many, many books, three. <laughs> three. Um, yep. three, yep, and he's written The Roving like Party. <laughs> I bet it does. But he's been in the game for a really long time. He's won multiple awards, and he's an awesome dude. Uh, if you're interested in getting his books, they're called The Roving Party, To Name Those Lost, and his most recent one was Daughter of Bad Times. Um, they're all fantastic, and he's one of my favourite authors and people in general. Rowan, welcome to this chat. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm Thanks for inviting me along. Always a always good time to chat with you and catch up with you. Yeah, yeah, it is good, especially in, you know, nowadays where it's a bit trickier to actually uh, meet up with each other. I've been recently going through a new thing that I've been working on, a new project, and I have a question for you right from the bat, and this is literally me just, well, it's not literally me, but I just want to pick your brains on how do you come up with your titles because they're great. Yeah, this is, I get stuck so much on titles and then I come up with one that I think is great, but then you run it past the people whose opinions you actually care about and they sort of give you that look where they're like, uh, they squidge their face up. Are you sure you want that one? Yeah. But I love I've your titles. Have you? Uh, you no, it, it is. A, it's a, I agree. Like, it's a really, really hard, awkward process coming up with a title, isn't it? It's never enjoyable, and it always feels like pulling teeth to me as well most of the time when I go through it. Yeah, and you, you kind of want it to be, like, poetic, but 
direct. It has to say what the book is at a glance. Yeah. It has to sort of fit in with genre. It has to not be dorky. It has, you know, it has to do like 50 things and it's three words or even one word. I just find it so hard. How did you come up with something? Because I think my favourite of your titles is To Name Those Lost. I really like that title. How did you come up with that one? To Name Those Lost came right at the very end of the process. Um, I'd called that book all the way through. It took about four or five years to write that book. I'd been calling it Toosie for five years or four years. Five years, I think, the best part of five years. And it wasn't until the very end of the process. Um, I forget which stage it was now. Somewhere around the time I was doing my last... Uh, it must have been my last structural draft, I think, with Annette Barlow at Allen and Unwin. And she said, Tuzi is just a terrible title. We can't call it Tuzi because that was the, oh, the name no. of the main character. It was Thomas Tuzi. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, as soon as she said it, I was like, yeah, I know. It is bad, isn't it? It's, it's, it was just, and, and it, all my friends have been calling it Tuesday. People had showed it to. We all just called it Tuesday. And that's just what it was. And I, I never yeah. even thought about it. But as soon as she said that, I was like, yeah, it's, it's a really weak title, isn't it? I can do better than that. And so I found a little section at the end of the novel where um, Thomas Tuesday's son kind of reflects on what everything that's happened to him across the course of the novel and what it meant to him. And he had this little sentence that he says, which is, um, uh, I forget exactly how it goes now, something like the sound, the sound of love is to name those lost who live for others or something, mm. something like that. And um, something really that know, summed I, up a lot of what that book was, right? Basically caught everything that the book was about. And it had so many different meanings to me as well. Like, uh, you know, I, I was very consciously digging up the past with that book and I was trying to name these kind of lost people from, um, from, from Tasmanian history who some of yeah. them had been in the historical record and some who I'd invented. And it just had a lot of resonance for me as well. So, and uh, the publishers loved it and they thought it was really strong. So we, we went with that and it, it, it was a good choice. I mean, it, I think the problem with that title is I remember speaking to a lot of people about it and a lot of people would say to me, what's the title of your book? And I would tell them and they would say, sorry, say that again. And I would tell them again. And then they wouldn't remember. And I'd be talking to them a few days or a few weeks later and they'd say, what was the title of your book again? And it just over and over that happened to me and it wouldn't stick in people's minds. And so I knew then, ah, okay, well, it, I like that title and my publishers like that title, but I think regular people just didn't really... Yeah, it didn't, it didn't speak to them somehow. And yeah, so you think it spoke more to like people in in literature, people who like uh, you know the literary genre. It had a bit of a poetic, meaningful flow, but it wasn't something that people would pick up and go, "Oof, you know, this is my cup right. of tea." This is yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I don't know. I think that the main the main thing with titles is good, strong, concrete nouns. You know, like a thing, something something that people can hold on to. So uh, The Roving Party, I had that title from the very beginning. I, that book was always just called The Roving Party because that was one of the reasons why I wrote that book is because John Batman's Roving Party was always called his Roving Party. He used to call it his Roving Party. That was what they called them back in the 1820s. And that, that phrase, I remember coming across that phrase in a history book, you know, John Batman's Roving Party that were responsible for massacres. And it just struck me. It just hit me so forcefully. like, roving party what the hell is that is that like a and, it, yeah. and it's exactly what it sounds like it's a, it's a group of men who rove about the country rove about, yeah. killing and kidnapping yeah and 
That's um, so good though. So, that must so that that one just arrived. That one was just it there. Just bang straight away. Yeah. As soon as I read that phrase in a history book, I knew, damn, that is something I want to read more about and learn about. And I don't know other people are going to feel the same way too. So yeah, that one that one was always the title straight away. Um, and you've yeah, got daughter. So, I don't know. Daughter of Bad Times as well is very clever. Yeah, Daughter of Bad Times was um, a sort of a, a trial and error process to get that one. I was thinking about, uh, like, I wanted to capture the character and the conflict in one phrase. You know, I want, I want a title that captures the character and the conflict. So the main character is this rich woman's daughter who has been adopted, but kind of adopted in a bit of a nefarious way, like not, not an entirely yeah. happy adoption. Yeah. And, um, you know, her, the, her mother, her, her birth mother uh, was going through some bad times when she lost her daughter. And yes. it just, I don't know, it felt, it felt, again, like it also had that resonance of um, future times for me as well. You know, I, that's, that's a science fiction book. It's set 60 years in the future. And- yeah, and it's sort of this, I guess you'd call it dystopian light maybe. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's like it's got a lot of drastic changes in the world future, but it's a very more gradual descent into It's a recognisable future, hopefully. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't Mad so Max. It's not Mad Max. No, it isn't Mad Max, but it's, <laughs> it's, also, it's also a fair bit grimmer and darker than our own world at the moment. So. Yeah. Um, well, just going well, back, I'd love to chat with you a little bit. Um, you were talking about Annette giving you notes and that brilliant thing that editors can do where they can just smash you in the face with this idea. No, not there. And then that, that thing where you f- sit back and you get deflated cause you had hoped it was the thing, but deep down you kind of knew it wasn't quite there yet. And they just know how to do that. Don't they? They just know how to hit you around. But I, I just was wondering how do you find that process valuable and what does that process done to any of your books like where someone from the outside has really looked into it and pinpointed ways in which it could be stronger and I guess also how do you get out of your own way to take those notes because you know uh, I think writers I mean we can be sensitive souls and we can get hurt <laughs> by these <laughs> mean editors we definitely can <laughs> I love you editors, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so yeah, just about that process in general, what are your thoughts? It's a great process to go through as a writer. I remember the very first edits I got back from Annette um, as part of the roving party were just so, that was the first time I'd ever worked with a professional editor and they were so incredibly insightful and valuable. And it was just most of it, like when, and, and writers who have been through this experience will all know that feeling. But as, you, as you're reading through your editor's notes, you're just nodding your head and you're going, Yes, that's so true. Yes, that's so true. And, and they, they know things about your own work that you know in your heart of hearts. You know that that's a problem. But you've yeah. um, talked yourself out of it because it's a lot of work and you're kind of mostly happy with how it is at the moment. So near enough is good enough a lot of the time. When you've been working on something for four or five years, you get to a point where near enough has to be good enough because you can't live with that book any longer. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. Yeah, yeah. So, so you so you accept those flaws and and you and you send it off to your publisher and um, it comes back, you know, as it should, as it rightfully should. It comes back with queries over all over the manuscript. So, I, I really enjoy that process. I really like it. But one thing I found is that as, as I grow as a writer and as I learn more about what I'm doing, um, I'm getting better at 
saying no to some editor's suggestions. And I'm also getting better at understanding where, you know, my readers see the faults. And, and a lot of the things that my readers see as faults, I've come to realise um, are things that I value in, in books as well. Like I, I, I found myself often sort of out of touch with my own audience, you know, like they, they will say they don't like things about the book. And for me, it's yeah. a strength of the book, you know, and, and that, that's something that I've just had to live with. You know, if you write a book, a lot of people read it and they all say, I don't like this fact of the book. But for you, it's like one of the reasons that prompted you to write the book. I don't know how a writer's supposed to deal with that. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do in that situation. It's like, well, okay, you don't like it. Our tastes are different, you know. And, and mm. I've, I've gotten better at, at letting those kind of criticisms kind of wash over me. And, and spotting when my taste is different to somebody else's taste, I think, is one thing I've, I've learned a little I've come to realise that I'm not, I'm, I'm not as mainstream as I thought I was. You know, I love Star Wars and I love Marvel movies and all of that. Sure. But when it comes to literature, I don't think my tastes are particularly mainstream. So I just have to sort of accept that. I'm, I'm always going to be a niche author and I'm never going to be a big seller. And that's just part of my identity as a writer. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like I, I, the, the idea of finding value, I guess maybe it's even just finding like a confidence in in your choices and even like you say if an editor is pushing back a little bit or an early reader or whoever's giving you notes is pushing back on something it can either one cause you to reevaluate and go oh, okay maybe they're right or two double down on why you like it it kind of reinforces the first thing yeah man that's, and that's, that's a danger said. yeah you have you have to pick and choose your battles and make sure you're not doubling down on just stubbornness and yeah, things that you can't I guess, be bothered. Yeah, yeah. I guess too. Um, if it depends on why you're writing. So I guess if you were, if you're writing just to get people to like your books, that's a very different type of writing to uh, writing to get to the heart of a difficult moral question or writing as a form of expressing. Uh, an idea like a wrestling with a with a with an idea it's quite a different thing and i guess you'd probably fall much further into the second camp than the first camp yeah well the, the i think probably for me the the biggest challenge that all writers are facing today in the current climate is that readers by and large our readership wants likable characters um, and, and, and I understand that and I get that because who wants to spend hours and hours and hours of their own time with a person they don't like? Nobody wants to do that. But <laughs> it does, it, it, it boxes readers into a certain type of story, you know, a heroic kind of story where, where a character suffers and learns and grows and changes, but they're fundamentally a good person. Mm. And I, I'm not particularly interested in those kind of people. I don't find them all that fun to read about most of the time and I don't find them all that fun to write about. So I have sort of come to recognise that, you know, I've had that, that criticism has been levelled at my books by readers for all of them. You know, they all say, gee, these characters are unlikable. And, and it's true, they are unlikable. But to me, that's part of the attraction and, and part of what makes them interesting to write about. So, mm. I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult decision. All, all writers have to... It's something we have to balance. We, you mean you have to give all characters traits, or you have to you have to write about people who are um, morally grey rather than morally black or white. I guess is is what it comes down to. But 
Yeah. It's so difficult to do that in a way that doesn't feel cheap or fake or... That's, that's the thing with me. Like, if I feel like if I started to write characters who made great decisions and, you know, were really upstanding, and I guess if the conflict with things that were external happening to them that they're in their good character having to fight through, I just feel like that would it wouldn't sit right with me. I would feel like I've not actually captured a part of humanity. But in the, you know, in the aim to always write people who have struggles and things like that, they just feel like real people to me. And I guess, again, it goes back to why a person reads. And I think some readers read to connect with things inside themselves mm. and wrestle with things. But I think other people read to escape. And I enjoy both of those things when I'm reading too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, you know? yeah. Yeah, so I get, I get that where there's value in one, but I also see the value in the other. And I certainly don't think I would... Like, I'm, I'm reading... I'm trying to read Crime and Punishment at the moment and uh, talk about morally difficult characters. Man, oh, man, and just a difficult book. But, you know, I don't then go and rate Dostoevsky one star because I didn't like... <laughs> you know That's what I mean? Right. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. what it comes down to. And I think audiences do have more power than they've ever had before in a lot of ways because of Goodreads and these, and, and you know, there are so many um, bloggers who review and then post it all over social media. You know, audiences have a lot more say these days than they've had in the past. And, you know, authors, yeah. Australian authors, we're only publishing, like our, our books are lucky to sell 5,000 copies. You know, if you sell 5,000, you're very, very lucky and you've done a great job. So if you've got, 100 people or 150 people out there giving your book a pasting because they don't like the characters. It can really heavily influence how well your book does. Okay. Yeah. So it's, 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 I don't know. I feel like, I feel as if audiences in Australia, or in particular in Australia and in literary fiction, I feel as if the audiences are boxing us in a little bit as writers. I feel like there's, there's a little bit too much resistance to characters who are, uh, I don't know, what's the best way to describe it? Characters who make readers uncomfortable, I think. Mm. You know, I, I simply cannot imagine. I don't, I don't think it would be possible for a book like um, Lolita to be published in Australia today. I, I'm 100% convinced that no, no publisher would publish Lolita today. And I think audiences, well, you know, audiences would be repulsed by those characters in Lolita, by all, all of them. And yes. It, it would... You know, I don't know. Well, yeah, because I mean, the characters in Lolita, I actually haven't read Lolita, but what I've heard, the characters are repulsive, Mm, right? A lot of the things, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. You got that right. But yeah, and I guess guess it's it's no longer the thing where you, I guess, think about those things, but it's it's much more quick to, to, I guess, not even bother trying to think, I guess. Exactly. No, that's been my experience too. Yeah. yeah, and I guess at the same time, though, like there are a lot of really, like there are some Australian literary authors who have, they do, there are these books that sort of strike this balance between like an entertaining read, but they are with these morally complex characters that are a bit darker and there's they're wrestling with big themes, but they're still that page turner. Um, you know, obviously, um, Tim Winton, a lot of people... Um, I've, I mean, the reviews for Tim Winton's books tend to be either five stars, I loved it, it was the most interesting thing I've ever read, or like two stars, what the heck is this about, why do people like it? Um, yeah. 
which I guess you've done your job right if you've done that. <laughs> he divides people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess he's done the good. Um, he's done well. Um, I have so a lot of the questions I've written here to ask you, Rowan. Um, uh, my attempt at asking you questions that the, no other interviewer has asked you before about your writing. So <laughs> we'll like see that. how we go. I mean, you might <laughs> might have had them, but uh, a question: What is your favourite scene? out of any of your own books that you've written? What is one where, you know, you've sat back and you've gone, all right, I did something there. Like I've, I've, I've done something special there. I'm going to retire for the day, you know, leave on a high note. Can you remember any of those? That's a really good question. Nobody has ever asked me that question before. Yes. This is, <laughs> this is, I love these questions because this is, this is real words and nerd stuff. This is, this yeah. is the, the, the kind of stuff that writers live for. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there are a few off the top of my head. Um, the ones that really, like the ones that I would read, there are a few that I've written that I could read and I've read, you know, 15, 20 times and it would still make me emotional. Um, I think one that comes to mind is when Cashlin finally catches up with William Toosey in To Name Those Lost and um, their, their kind of showdown. He's hiding out in a in a hotel room and he's just stolen a bunch of money. He thinks he's gotten away scot-free and he thinks he's about to go down and catch a boat and be reunited with his son and everything's going to be okay. And then the door opens and this extraordinarily angry and vengeful young Irish girl <laughs> is standing there with a gun in her hand. And, yeah. <laughs> and it just doesn't go well for Tuesday at all. And, and I remember writing that scene and thinking, damn, that's a, I would love to see that in a movie. Um, yeah. That whole book it's, is that whole book is movie material though. Like we were talking just then about page turners. That one for me was a page turner. Like I was up all night. You know that thing. You're up till one a.m. You have to go to work the next day. But I was just I got to finish. And yeah, it was devastating. That book. It was awesome. Yeah, that was my aim with that book. I I, I tried to write scenes that that built one after the other and led led naturally to kind of high points, emotional high points in the story. So there are, there are three or four emotional high points in that story, kind of turning points for each character. And, yeah, the one where Cashlin and Tuzi was always the one that I had in my mind that I wanted to get to. It was, it was the high point of the novel. And, yeah, I mean, the, the draft that I wrote of that, I think the, the one that's in the book is probably only like a second draft or a third draft. I got it right first time because I'd written everything else and I'd been thinking about that scene for so long you know, for a couple of years before I wrote it. And Man, I got it right first go away. Yeah. That's so, that's almost, that makes me scared, like the idea of, you know, years of work and then you finally sit down that day to write that scene and your fingers are on the keyboard and it's like, I got to, it's like, you know, being a musician prepping to do like a jazz solo in front of everybody. <laughs> and it's make or break. If you miss it, there's no, you know, the magic's not coming back, like, the people won't be the same and the vibe won't be the same. You can try to recreate it, but then it's not going to feel, it's going to feel like a carbon copy of the first one. So you just want it to go right. <laughs> I always feel nervous for you, but I'm so glad it went well. <laughs> well, it's lucky. The good thing about writing is that you don't have to do it in front of an audience. You get to do it at home. And if you make a mistake, no one knows. You just delete it and you try again. And uh, that's, that's always the good part about it. But it, it is also... I mean, that's, that's one of the true thrill, thrills of writing something, especially long-form fiction, I think. It, it, the thrill of having a scene percolate in your mind for a couple of years, you know, and having written sketches of it and, and written 
all of the story that precedes that and leads up to that moment and know and knowing in your mind what's coming you know and, and knowing it and having known it for years and then you finally get there, those days those three or four days when you get to write those scenes are kind mm. of what writing's all about for me i think like that's where the mm. true pleasure lies you know being able to nail a scene that you've thought about in depth for months or years yeah yeah that's so good man that's so good and then <laughs> yeah just to sit back and go yeah i did this and you got you kind of get to be the first one to see what happens you get to see how it unfolds and it's exciting it's like i'm the first person who gets to see the like you say the culmination of this story that's really cool i'm glad yeah <laughs> i'm glad yeah, I, asked well, that, that question. Stuff, I mean yeah it's a, that's a great question because it is really that's that's the heart of writing for me. I think like that's why I love it. That's why we all love it. You know. That, yeah, that, I agree. That experience of being the first person having having a front row seat, you know, in a story like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What on the note of you know you've been writing uh, fantastic scenes and your your fingers are motoring through. I was wondering what you've been up to recently with your writing. Have you got a a project you're working on, or you, what are you doing? I do have a project I'm working on. I've been working on it for about two years now, and I, I figure I'm probably about halfway um, thereabouts. It's uh, it doesn't have a title yet. I, this one, I've I've been calling it Restoration. That's its working title, and that's that's what it's. It's not bad. Like. That's yeah, one of those good. You can see the cover of that, like the one title across the middle of the page, big bold. It's a little bit 19th century. It's a little bit Jane Austen or something, isn't it? <laughs> there's, something, there's something about it. I'm not sure. I, I, I kind of like it, but I, I wonder if it's a little pretentious or something. Yet I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm just going to let that one marinate. But it's, it's been really fun to write. It's, it's the hardest book I've ever written by far. Like, you know, I, wow. I thought writing about, writing about the future of climate change and writing about the Maldives, you know, a tiny Muslim country <laughs> off the south yeah. coast of India. I thought that was going to be hard, and it was very hard. This book is a whole nother level. This one is really, really pushing you to my limits. It's, um, I've almost walked away from it a couple of times just thinking, wow. I, can't, I can't solve this. It's beyond me. It's, it's literally, I, I literally don't have the skills to write this book. Um, but I'm, I'm pushing through it and just trying to learn, you know, trying to learn what I need to know to execute what I want to do. And um, it's proving to be extremely difficult. But, the, you know, that difficulty is part of the fun, isn't it? That's, that difficulty is growth in a lot of ways. So... Absolutely. Yeah. I've stuck with it. Well, that's good. And, and so you reckon you're halfway? Is that an amount of words or is that just like, I mean, do you have a plan of attack for how you're going to then cross the finish line now or are you still I've, sort of thinking things through? I've, for the, I don't know. My, my process changes from book to book and I've, I've done it both ways. Like, you know, that people say there are those, there, there are plotters and pantsers, you know, and, and plotters sit down and plot everything out in detail, you know, scene by scene breakdowns. And, and that's how good script writers operate. You know, they'll, they'll use um, scene cards and they'll, and they'll write scene by scene sketches and then fill them out, rearrange the scenes and things like that. And I've done it that way. I did it that way for Daughter of Bad Times um, because I had to because the, the plot was so complicated. You know, it's set across three different time periods with two different points of view and I, I had to get everything straight in that book. Um, but you know, with the roving party, I just wrote it start to finish and I had no idea where the story was going. Um, I was just basing it on Batman's letters and diaries. Um, yeah. I just followed his, I just followed his life for, for a period of 12 months and, and wrote what I encountered in his journals. 
Um, so I've done it both ways, but this book is a combination of both. This book, I, I, I sat down and plotted everything out scene by scene in great detail, start to finish. Mm. And as soon as I started writing, I got about 15 or 20,000 words in and it all fell apart in my hands and nothing I'd, nothing I'd planned out worked. So I had to stop and go back. And I've done that 13 times now. I've stopped, gone back to the start. Sorry, um, what? Deleted, Hang on. Deleted wait, about what? half of what I had. 13 times. 13 times. Oh, yeah. I went to the 13th draft of the first act. So I've written the first act. I've written the second act a couple of times, but it fell apart very quickly. So I've, I've gone back and I've rewritten the, the first act 13 times now. And it's finally starting to come together um, just in the last two or three drafts. It's actually starting to make sense and cohere and be a, like a story that people might actually want to read. So, and how do, you, how do you do that? Like, how do, you have, how do you have the discipline to do that? And like, do you just get annoyed with it sometimes? Like you want to throttle it and you're like, come on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it, yeah. do you have like a, a sort of a picture in your head? This is the vibe I want from this act, but it's just not happening on the page. Yeah, that's, that's part of the problem. Yeah, and I think it's about, uh, it, it's, it's often about the characters themselves. And, and one of the problems with, with plotting is that you don't know who the characters are. You, don't, you, can't, you can't know them until you've spent a lot of time with them and you've written multiple scenes with them because they emerge, they, a lot of the things that make up a character emerge by accident. You know, you'll, you'll write a couple of sentences and it's just, there's something in, in the way a character moves or speaks or acts or, you know, somebody will say something to them and the way they react to those things. You can't know that stuff until you've written it. And, and a lot of those little micro decisions that you make, they sort of stockpile and they build up. And, and, and after about five or six scenes, you've got a character who no longer fits your plot because they're so interesting and they're so human that you've got to follow them now. And they don't fit the plot anymore. You know, why, why would this really interesting, lively, funny person do these stupid do this. things that I want them to do later in Act 2? There's no way they would yeah. do that. So it falls apart and I end up having to go back to the start and think, okay, well, now this person that I do have, how would they act? What would they do? And I have to rewrite the plot. And so it's a never-ending problem. The same thing happened in Daughter of Bad Times, but I was able to kind of wrangle that one back in. But this book I haven't been able to wrangle at all. It just, it's so... Um, so weird and the, the big problem i've had with it is that it's set inside uh part of it is set inside a virtual world it's set inside a computer game so most of the story takes place outside in kind of you know what would you call it meat space or irl you know every in real life <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then but then there are these chapters quite a few of them that take place inside the game world and so it just it, it wasn't working for the longest time. It wasn't working, and it's still. I'm still not sure if it is, but it's starting to make more sense now. Um, the way my character is on the outside of the game and the way they are on the inside of the game has to line up and has to kind of cohere, and 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 the two things have to feed into each other. And it's it's been really, really, really difficult to get that to work. Yeah, I mean, I'm just. I think that discipline is remarkable to be able to. I'm just speaking for myself, but when, whenever I write something, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm just. I don't have the discipline. I don't know how many writers feel like me, but I don't know whether I would go back and go, "Okay, it's not working," because well, the character is different now. I think I just force them to be different. <laughs> yeah. No, well, shut up! Yeah. Shut up! You, you're not suiting this thing that I want to achieve. 
but I think the book would yeah, suffer if that sure. was the thing. Yeah, I think I think like you're staying true to where the character's taking you is probably getting at some deeper idea that's much more interesting. But man, that's just I'm just I think that's remarkable discipline to go back thirteen times, man, rewriting. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's discipline. I I, I look at it as cost saving or, or product productivity saving measures. I I know from experience that if I keep writing forwards like if if i've got a first act that's kind of falling apart and and doesn't really make much sense i know if i keep writing forward i'm wasting my time Mm. Um, because it just means that everything that comes after that is not going to line up you know it's like it's like a thread you know a story is like a thread it's like a you know it it has to form a connection from one end to the other like it, it has to be unbroken from one end to the other and i find that if i keep writing when i know the thread's broken it's a waste of time because there's no there's no tension there. There's no tautness in the string. There's no pull on the, on either end of the string. And so I, I find if I don't have a solid anchor in the first uh, act, there's not much point writing forward. So mm. as much as I get frustrated, you know, there's nothing more boring than rewriting the same stuff thirteen times in a row. Trust me, it's it's boring as hell. But it's the only way I can create a solid sort of stable foundation for the rest. Yeah, of which the is world. necessary to build on. Yeah. yeah, and I guess that's an interesting question too. Like writing the same scenes over and over again, do you, do you find the blood kind of leaks out of the vitality of it a little or are you able to capture the same feeling each time? It must feel maybe a little more dead to you. Like it must be hard for you to look at it with fresh eyes. There, uh, there's, there's a number somewhere around, for me, between about 25 and 30 or 35. Around 30, it does start to feel extremely tedious. You know, that's having rewritten a scene 30 times means you've probably read it 60 or 70 times. And it, yeah, there is a point there where I just cannot be bothered anymore. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you just, you just hate the sight of your own writing. And I got to that point with Daughter of Bad Times. There were scenes in that book that I rewrote 30 times. And I was literally just sick to death of them by the end of it um these ones i've only rewritten 13 times so they still feel somewhat fresh to me um and there are, there are, there are yeah so it's not <laughs> it's not all bad yet it's not all bad yet um i actually heard uh, i forget which podcast i was listening to but there was an interview with a comedy writer and they talked about the process of being in the room and pitching like comedy scene and everyone's laughing and having a great time and oh that's definitely going and they write it down and then months of pre-production and you've got to shoot the other episodes first and then you write it down it goes through a few edits and you finally get it to you know the actors and they're reading it through but they've read it through you know six table reads and it gets to where they're reading it out loud and no one's laughing anymore and they were saying like you got to kind of trust that your gut in the first place knew what it was doing so even though you're not having the same reaction later on, trust that you had a good instinct <laughs> to start with because yeah. don't then go changing it because that sort of will muck up the original intent, I guess, of it. That's absolutely true. And, and also I think the reverse is true as well. If, if you do have scenes that you've read and rewritten 25 or 30 times and they still, even after that many readings and rewritings, still have an emotional impact on you when you read them again, that's when you know you've written something that's going to connect with people, I think. And I've also had that experience too. I've, I've had a lot of scenes that I've written over the years that even after 30 readings and 30 rewrites, they still had an impact on me. So um, it's, it's also a way of, 
I guess it's a way of sorting the wheat from the chaff a lot as well. It's something yeah. that can stand up to that many repeated viewings is obviously doing something that it needs to. Now, these chats, I tell you what, I could go for a long, long time with these chats. Danny, if you're, when you're listening to this recording, uh, the three-hour podcast with Ben Hobson, please. Uh, <laughs> not that anyone else would <laughs> listen to that maybe, but anyway. Um, but one last question before I let you go, um, and this is a weird one. Again, one of those questions I've been aiming to see if uh, it can stump you maybe a little bit. But l- let's say there's an alternative universe and uh, a great book, one of your favourite books, a book that you just fell in love with, it was never written. And then you stumble, you stumble upon this manuscript and it's there and it has your name on it. I guess what I'm asking is if there was a book that you could have written and no one knew you stole it <laughs> from someone else, what would it be? What would you love to see, you know, Rowan Wilson on the, on the spine of? If I could pick one. Wow. Yeah. Um, God. A- any book from history. That, that, yeah. Well, there's so many. Um, I think, I think like if I was going to pick one, I'd want it. I'd want to have a book that was just really cool. Um, Probably, Ooh. I don't know, maybe something like Fight Club or... Uh, Ooh, good choice. Yeah, Fight Club would be a good one just because it's so goddamn cool. You know, it's the kind of book that people read and just, you know, everybody wants to be Tyler Durden, you know. And that, yeah. that, I think something like that, something that gets into people's psyche. And, uh, is That's just- such an interesting answer. I did not expect you to say that. That is so... <laughs> Fight Club feels so different to what you're, you do as an author a lot of the time. Not that you're not cool, but, like, there's a different uh, tone or different voice. Um, I love that answer. That's really good. I love Fight Club, too. It was one of the books Fight I read. I think it was, I was 18, and it was one of those books that was, like, a gateway drug yep, into exactly. literature and more <laughs> yep. difficult subjects. And, yeah, it was shocking. It was a great book. It's shocking, it's funny, it's political, it's brilliantly, brilliantly written. Like, it's a book that you could never be ashamed of having written. No, mm. no matter what reviewers or critics or people said about it, you would always know, you know, fuck all of you. I wrote <laughs> fuck. You know, it's a cool book. <laughs> it is, it is. It's a tough book. It's great. All right, cool. Well, thanks for that. Thanks, Rowan, for joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see. Hopefully you'll manage to finish this new project uh, soonish, and then we can all read don't it. Hold your breath. Yeah, I'm working on it, but don't <laughs> hold your breath. Well, actually, that, if you want to read a chapter of it, I did publish a chapter of it. You can go online to uh, oh um, the journal. It's it's an academic journal. It's called New Writing. You can read the first chapter of my book in, in New Writing. Um, it's up there. It's available. Wow. And, um, I'm going to have to check that out. I will read that. Thank you for that tidbit. I uh, look at that scoop, Danny. There's a scoop on words and nerds. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon, hey? Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Take care. All right, bye.